with me. We're going to be starting at verse 18 and just stopping at the end of verse 23. John 5, verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead, gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Would you pray once more with me, please? Holy God in heaven, as we read this passage and we consider the relationship of the Father and the Son, it ought to immediately spark worship and a marveling attitude in our hearts to come to you in prayer and to let the first word that comes out of our mouths so often as we pray be, Father. We thank you that we've been brought into the love between God the Father and God the Son because of what Christ has done for us. Lord, this morning as we tackle this very theological issue, may we see clearly the heavy weight that it bears on our lives, whether we receive it or reject it, because it is a passage like this that draws a line in the sand. It says, there are those who know Christ for who he truly is. There are those who have either said, I know a different Christ, or I know nothing of this Christ and want nothing to do with him. Lord, this morning, would you, by your great grace, and because of what your word has said right here, that the Son gives life to whom he wills, we are asking for your will to be to bring life to each and every one of us sitting under your word this morning. That we would not leave here on the other side of the line in the sand, but that we'd be transformed. That those of us who know Christ for who he is would go deeper in that relationship and would walk more closely with him and would give him the honor that is due his name. That perhaps those of us who might be here this morning who do not know Christ would make that journey by your grace. Humble our hearts this morning, Lord. Speak clearly to us, Lord, not as through a man, but by your spirit, whispering truth, transformative, life-giving gospel to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It seems rather silly, looking at the introduction of my sermon, to move away from that passage to William Shatner. But we're going to do it. Because William Shatner this past week did something. He went boldly where only some men have gone before, right? William Shatner, famous for Star Trek for however many years, however many seasons he was on TV, and then several movies. William Shatner is known most 
prominently for his character of Captain Kirk in Star Trek and for his cavalier attitude of go get em kind of mentality and, and a desire to boldly go where no man has gone before. William Shatner, at the age of 90 this past week, was launched into outer space in a little blue rocket. With three other people, thankfully, there was others with him. Over the course of 10 minutes and 17 seconds, he traveled 65.8 miles up into space, just to the edge of space, just to the edge of the atmosphere. I presume I don't know that much about science here. But his words coming back rung in my ears for days after I read this. Upon landing and upon giving a hug to Jeff Bezos, the generous benefactor of his trip to outer space, he says, William Shatner, he says, it was so moving to me. I hope I never recover from this. I hope that I can maintain what I feel now. I don't want to lose it. I don't imagine there are many things in William Shatner's life that he could say that about. A certain feeling, a certain experience, a certain mindset. But in this 10-minute trip, he spent three minutes in outer space. And upon his arrival, his first reaction is to say, that has changed my life at 90 years old. And he was on a TV show. And he's done all those ridiculous commercials. And he's been referenced thousands of times online. And it was this journey to space that so clearly seems to have defined his life at the age of 90. Three minutes traveling 66 miles almost straight into the sky. I don't want to lose it. I hope I never recover from this. Isn't it fascinating, the word usage that he gives? I hope I never recover. You can imagine being in a rocket and going up into space is not like driving down a smooth road in a nice neighborhood on a warm, sunny day. You don't need to recover from a nice drive through the neighborhood. But William Shatner is saying, I hope I never recover from this. I hope I am ever changed by what I experienced in outer space, for real. He went from years and years of standing in front of a backdrop with a painted, imaginary outer space world behind it to actually being in the real thing. And this passage that we're looking at today shows us that when Christ is pressed with a question of who he really is, who do you think you are, working on the Sabbath, claiming things that would only lead us to believe you think you are equal with God. And upon the pressure of the Jews coming upon Jesus in this question, what we find is there is no painted background with Christ. They are unable to unearth some kind of falsehood about him, but in fact, he elaborates this beautiful picture of what his equality with God really is like. And I would say that though the Jews, as we read in verse 18, were seeking all the more to kill him, and many of them, most of them, it seems, never gave up that pursuit, they were certainly changed, and they would never recover from their conversation with Jesus. And if you've been converted by Jesus, you will never recover from that. Because what happens at the point of conversion for those of us who know Christ is far more impacting than being shot up in a rocket 65 miles into the sky. That is nothing in comparison. 
reading William Shatner's words reminded me so clearly of how comfortable I get with the person of Christ and how desperately I need to be able to marvel at who he is and give him the honor that is due his name. William Shatner comes down from outer space back to earth marveling at what he saw and giving honor to his benefactor who sent him up in the rocket in the first place. What do you marvel at today? What is it that has your attention? What is it that you say, I hope I never recover from this. I want to maintain what I feel now and never lose this. It was so moving to me. What is that thing in your life that you marvel at, intentionally or otherwise? And therefore, who earns that honor for whatever work it might be that you are marveling at? The call of this passage this morning is that in light of the Father's love, we must marvel at Christ. We must honor the Son, honoring his word and his work as that of God the Father. Which sounds like a very simple thing for us to do, particularly if we have had any type of biblical exposure or, or theological training in the New Testament. We see very clearly that an important theme of Christ as a person is his unity with God the Father. We do not worship more than one God, and yet this God that we know exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons, eternally bound, perfect unity, perfect harmony, all equally divine and yet distinct in their personhood. And we say in light of all of that, we worship one God. And good theological Jews look at us and say, that's not monotheism. And good theological Muslims look at us and say, that's not monotheism. And yet this is the Bible that we have today. The Bible that comes in response to people saying, Jesus has never said that he was equal with God. If you listen to the passage today, you can't walk away agreeing with that notion. He made very clear who he is. Our call is in light of the Father's love as the groundwork for the relationship between the Father and the Son to marvel at the Son and to honor the Son in the same way we would marvel and honor in the very presence of the Father. Jesus makes this clear throughout the rest of the gospel as well. He has a conversation with his disciples at the Last Supper, and Philip comes to him and says, Jesus, I know you're going away. I know there's a lot going on here, but show us the Father. That will be enough for us. Would you give us a heavenly vision like the prophets had in the Old Testament? And what is Jesus' response? Have I not been with you this long, Philip, and still you do not know me? Because if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now, he's not saying that Jesus is the Father, but he's saying that there is such a unity and equality between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, such that having an encounter with Christ is to understand who God truly is, because he himself is divine. Let's think about the context here of what's going on. You'll remember from last week this miraculous healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda who had been waiting for 38 years to be relieved of his illness, his paralysis. He couldn't walk. There were many other people around him. He had no hope whatsoever. When Jesus comes to him, he asks the question, do you want to be healed? And he says, hey, I've got nobody to put me into the pool. And every time I try to do it on my own, somebody else beats me to it. And nobody cares about me. There's no mercy in the house of mercy. And Christ says, get up, take up your bed and walk. Here's your mercy. It's in me. 
And he does that when? What day is it? It's the Sabbath. And the Jews, and remember when we see the Jews here, we're not talking about every Jewish person. We're talking about the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees. And so we dealt a little bit, the last, the end of last week, we dealt a little bit with their response to him. And, and they, they come to him and they, they say, hey, we're going to be persecuting this guy because he's doing these things on the Sabbath. They totally bypass the miracle. They totally disregard that this man of paralysis for 38 years is no longer paralyzed. They throw that away and they say, hey, this guy did it on the Sabbath. He's a false teacher. And in their minds, they're thinking, we've got him, right? This is, this is what we can do. Because their concern is, this man is going to have greater influence than us. He's going to take over what we have control of. He's going to become very popular, and we are going to fade into the background. This is the heart of the Jewish leaders. Every time Jesus does everything that he does, and his response in verse 17, my father is working until now, and I am working. An interesting I am statement. If you're familiar with the Gospel of John, there's a lot of I am statements, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the bread of life. Here we have one that we don't really associate with I am statements so well, and grammatically that makes sense, but I am working on the Sabbath, the day where God commands that you are to do no normal work. You are to give that day to worship God. And so from that commandment that we looked at in the Ten Commandments not too long ago, the Pharisees and other Jewish leaders over time make their own understanding, their own commentaries on the Bible, and they say, hey, look, you better not do a single thing that looks like work, even down to the point of carrying your bed on the Sabbath. And certainly not healing someone. Christ's work shows us that on the Sabbath, doing acts of mercy and meeting basic needs are perfectly acceptable Sabbath activities that coincide with real worship. They go right along with what God is doing, and Jesus gives us the reason. My Father is working, and I am also working. The Jews hear that, and they say, now we've really got him. Let's let him keep talking, because he's just given us all sorts of reasons to persecute him and eventually put him to death. Because what has he done in this? My Father is working, and so I am working. He didn't say, hey, let's talk about what we should all do on the Sabbath. He says, there's something special about me, and it has to do with my Father. When we think about the deity of Christ or the godness of Christ, we have to think about the divinity, the deity of his father because he responds in that same way. So leaving the, the pool situation, leaving this man who, who doesn't know where Jesus went, we get this verse 18 in the middle of the story that launches Jesus into his whole sermon, basically. It's kind of a sermon on who he truly is. They wanted to kill him. And what is Jesus' response? Sometimes Jesus' response, when persecution comes, we can see it in the Gospel of Luke particularly, sometimes when persecution comes, Jesus disappears. Sometimes he's able to walk straight through the crowd. Is that because he's a coward? And right now he's showing unusual courage? No, it's because he's in charge. It's because he can decide when things will happen and when things will not happen. And so as Christ stands here to respond to this accusation of calling himself equal with God, John Piper says, perfectly, I'm stealing his words, Jesus let it stand. Did not rebuttal that. If Jesus was not truly God, but yet a, still a good rabbi, a good Bible teacher, he would have made it abundantly clear up front, hey, you really misunderstood what I was saying. Let me clarify this for you. 
But instead, what he actually does here, though he doesn't start by saying, yes, I am equal with God. Let me tell you all about that. He just goes right into telling them all about it. Because he doesn't need to affirm exactly what they said, but what he chooses to do is to affirm who he is and his mission in light of it as well. This is the point in the Gospel of John and in the life of Christ, more importantly here, where John 1, 1 through 18 that we read at Advent last year is coming straight into the face of those who oppose Christ. Those who think they know everything about God are faced with what we saw last December. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and everything was made through Him. You talk about the work of God, and you talk about Sabbath, and you come to the point where people are asking Jesus, why are you working on the Sabbath? And his answer is, my Father who created everything, by the way, I also created everything with him, He's still working, and I'm still working. The fall of mankind into sin has brought us to a place where we will continue to work step by step, day by day, however much we want in each individual day to redeem this world and make things right the way we intended them to be. Jesus lets this accusation stand regarding who he is and who his Father truly is. We see four ways that Christ relates to the Father. First, I'd offer you submission in verse 19. Follow along with me again, if you will. In verse 19, I say to you, the son, he's referring to himself, can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. So submission is where Jesus starts in understanding what equality with God really looks like. It's his starting point. He says, I can do nothing except for what I see my father doing. Now we might think about this in the negative because it's a negative statement, right? You have the word nothing in there. And we think about it negatively, we're saying, okay, so Jesus is fully dependent on the Father to know what he's supposed to do. And No, that, that's not it. What he's emphasizing here, because the context is all about equality with God, right? So if we reverse this and try to understand it in light of the context, not saying that Jesus said this wrongly, but for our own sakes, we need to realize that what Jesus is actually saying is, everything that the Father does, I do as well. There's, you can't find something that would show a distinction between the Father and the Son in regards to their godness, in regards to their deity. And yet the way that Christ relates in his equality to the Father is through submission. It's through following him. It's the way a son follows a father. Now, he's different than a normal earthly son following a father. He never makes a mistake. He never has to relearn something. He never has to go back and fix something like that. But Christ did become a man. The fullness of the Godhead, the fullness of Christ, the fullness of the Son, God the Son, became a person. And Luke tells us that he grew in stature before man and God. And he did learn. He did understand things. He is human in every way that we are, except without sin. So submission is the first one. Perfect submission. This is not a statement of essence. This isn't to say that God the Father is more God-like than the Son. But this is to say the relationship between the Father and the Son is one where the Son submits perfectly in obedience to the Father. Secondly, imitation, which we already addressed here in verse 19. Not as a normal child watches and learns, but Christ's imitation reveals a unison with the Father, such that when you see the workings of Christ, you're seeing essentially the work that God the Father is doing in the world. Matthew uh-oh, I lost my spot. Matthew, 5, Matthew, Matthew 3, verse 17, where Jesus is baptized. Think about the words of the Father when he comes out of the water. A voice comes from heaven. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am what? 
well-pleased. I'm pleased with him. I'm pleased with his works. There's, there's never, there was no you know, footnote at the bottom of that except when he does this. or when, No, perfect unison, perfect imitation, perfect submission. Thirdly, in verses 20 and 21, we see there's perfect power and a uni- unity of power between the Father and the Son. He's able to do what the Father does. He has harmony with the Father. He gives life to whom he will. This is not a, a note of distinction here because, again, we're talking about the equality. So the power of the Father and the power of the Son are the same thing. And Christ, when he chooses to give life and he chooses to give judgment, he's actually doing so according to the sovereignty of his Father and the sovereignty that he himself has. And this is an important note for us as well as we think about our own salvation. Because so often, as we think about our relationship with God, we start with ourselves, don't we? We start with ourselves and think, okay, how am I doing in my faith right now? I'm doing pretty well because I've done this, this, or this. Christ makes it clear that in salvation, in the relationship between God and humanity, he is the one who gives life to whom he will. And that should give us great comfort. We should have great comfort in the biblical doctrine of election. That when God chooses to save, he doesn't choose to save people because of something that they are or something that they've done. He chooses because he chooses. He has a mystery behind that. And the power of God's salvation through Christ, excuse me, is revealed to us in this very election, in the fact that he has chosen some. Now, do we respond? Yes, we do. We have to repent and believe. But everything that we see in Scripture, and for the sake of time, we won't go all over the place, but everything we see in Scripture is that salvation starts with the Lord. We do respond. But we respond because he is working in us, and his power for salvation is made evident through our changed lives. Fourthly, in verses 22 and 23, we see honor, part of our title's sake here. Look at verse 22 again. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. That, again, is not to say that, okay, well, the the Son does everything the Father does, but when it comes to judgment, the Father doesn't do that. There was a Piper, again, John Piper, a preacher, helped me kind of understand this better. He's saying that the, the Father doesn't judge anyone that the Son does not also judge. It's not that the Father has taken some to judge and the Son has taken others. It is to say that the judgment of the Father and the judgment of the Son are one and the same. They do not disagree in that. But when it comes to honor, verse 22 and 23, that all may honor the Son. That's the purpose of this. Just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now, have you seen anything in here where Jesus says, yes, I am God, I am divine, I am the Son of God, I am the Messiah? No, you don't see that. But we don't need to see that. Because Jesus gives us more than simply a declaration. He gives us an explanation. We cannot explain away Jesus' statements as something other than what they truly are. A declaration that in submission to the Father and imitation of the Father and the power that the Father has and the same honor that is due the Father is due the Son as well. Bless you. Lots of theology. Lots of head-turning stuff in this passage, right? There's years upon years upon years of study that could happen in these few verses. But let's talk What's the sermon? What's where I actually need to meet with this and deal with something? I think that our conflict or problem that we have with this passage is realizing that like these Jewish leaders, we are day by day in danger of misplacing Jesus somewhere he doesn't belong. And if we misplace Christ, we ourselves will be found to be out of place as well. 
This interaction that Jesus has with the Jews proves that it is a bigger matter, but not dismisses the issue of Sabbath. Okay? It is, a big, it is bigger than just saying, has he broken the Sabbath or has he not broken the Sabbath? Because we go deeper into understanding who Christ is. But this issue of Sabbath is where the Jewish leaders have met Christ and are meeting the truth of Christ. And so I would ask you this morning, is there some particular issue that you have spiritually, biblically, in life maybe, where you say, this is the place, this is the setting where I'm meeting Christ. This is the place where I look at God and say, I don't understand. You need to either explain this to me or fix it. And I would tell you that our problem with this kind of situation that we find ourselves in often is not necessarily in figuring out how to understand Sabbath, although Jesus deals with that, but he goes deeper. He goes into the essence of who he is. The essence of who Christ is and his equality with the Father is the thing we need to grapple with in our day-to-day problems that we have. That might seem dismissive of the problems that we face, of of financial issues or relational issues or those kinds of things. But we need to find the right starting point in saying, if I belong to Christ, then my life is going to show that. Not just in some ways, but in every way. My desire would not be to marvel at the works of others, but to marvel at the works of others of Christ, as he makes very clear is the purpose here. And to show honor to Christ as I ought to show honor to the Father. It's not enough to simply see Jesus as a teacher when he's talking to Nicodemus. Remember, this is the first words out of Nicodemus when he meets with Jesus. We know that you are a teacher sent from God. Well, does Jesus stop and say, hold hold on, there's a lot more than that. No, he talks about salvation at that point. But we're also seeing a progress here. We're seeing a progress not in regards to first things first and then you know, ordering things by primacy, but we're seeing a deepening of the truth of who Christ is in the Gospel of John. So it starts here, and Nicodemus, you know, in seeking to honor him, he says, I want to honor you. you. You are a teacher sent from God. We can see that. Jesus is more than just a teacher sent from God. It's not enough to simply see him as that. In Samaria, it's not enough to simply see Jesus as a prophet. You remember the point where the woman at the well recognized something deeper and truer about Christ was when he revealed something about her that he, she thought he should have never been able to know. And the deepening of that caused her to say, wow, I perceive that you are a prophet. So far, if we follow Nicodemus's testimony and the Samaritan woman's testimony, we have only a man. Sure, a teacher sent from God, someone worthy of honor. Sure, a prophet, someone who knows things beyond what the average human can know. And that is worthy of note. That is worthy of some degree of marveling in a place of honor. But is Christ actually Lord in the midst of all these things? Or is he thirdly a healer? We see the official coming to Jesus and saying, my son is sick. Come to my house and heal my son. And what does Jesus do? Yeah, he heals him, but before he says, what? Do you know what he says? Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And the man says, hey, it's not that I don't want to believe. I'm not even caring about belief right now. My son is about to die. Can you heal him? And so we see that the problems that we face in our day-to-day lives, whatever they might be, in whatever context or whatever wisdom we might look for from the Lord, 
we're seeing that the deeper spiritual realities are the things that we need to deal with first and understanding how to work out the rest of life, seeing who Christ is, seeing what he came to do, to deal with our sin. The official said, hey, look, this guy's a healer. Come heal my son. And then he learned more about him, and he believed that Jesus was not just a healer, but that he was the Christ, the Son of God. And then we have this man at the beginning of John chapter 5. Look, are you going to put me in the pool? That's what I want. Do you want to be healed? Put me in the pool. Jesus says, no, that's not all you need. The end of his conversation with him is, you have been healed. I fixed the problem that you have physically, temporarily, but there's a deeper problem. You need to continue on in your life and sin no more lest a worse thing comes upon you. He wasn't saying you need to be sinless, but he was saying that your priorities now must change. And he had given him grace to say, I'm going to relieve you of this burden right now of, of being paralyzed and being so thoroughly consumed with that burden such that you can't see your deeper need, but now I want you to see your deeper need. And to see me, Jesus says, as the only one who can satisfy it. This is what happens with the Jews. Hey, tell us about Sabbath. Jesus says, let me tell you about me. First of all, my father is working, and so I am working, of course, yes. But there is more to it than that. He expresses very clearly through his explanation of his submission to the father, of his imitation of the father, his power that is equal with the father, and his honor that he earns, that he deserves equal with the father that if Christ does not reign in our lives, if his work is not marveled, he is not honored as he ought to be, then we've missed everything about who Christ is. If we come to church on Sunday morning, if we open our Bibles, if we pray, if we do Bible study, if we even do ministry in hopes that we can say that, hey, this is kind of an exchange between me and God where I've done something for him and he'd hopefully like to do something for me, then we've missed entirely who Jesus is. We're not marveling at him. We're bartering with him. We're not honoring him. We are using him in a way, treating him as a vending machine, making this kind of an exchange whereas he wants to reign in our lives and cause us to marvel at who he is. So again, that is in verse 20. The father loves the son, shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works will, than these will he show him so that you may marvel the intention of the work of Christ on earth from the point of the gospel when he physically walked day by day for 33 years and the point of the life of Christ and the work of Christ today that has continued through his people, not just symbolically, but actually. That work's purpose is to call people to their deeper need and the deeper understanding of who Jesus truly is. But these Jewish leaders are in a terrible situation. They claim to follow Yahweh. They claim to know the Father, though they would never call him that on their own behalf. But they actually prove by rejecting Christ that they don't even know God. Jesus makes it clear you cannot honor God by dishonoring the Son. You cannot find a way to God except through the Son. There is no such thing as Christless Christianity. You cannot have a life in Christ without the true Christ, without truly knowing him, without giving him the honor that is due his name. And our problem that we need to address is that in areas of our lives, we have misplaced him, put him on the sidelines. We have made him secondary. We've made him not the starting point, but a backup plan. And if we've misplaced Christ, we've misplaced ourselves. If we face hardness in our hearts or an unfeeling or, or an inability to express worship, 
on Sunday morning, on Monday morning, on Tuesday night, on Wednesday afternoon, if we can't stop for a moment and recognize Christ is worthy of my honor and I need to marvel at that, we have a serious sin problem that we need to deal with. We have a sin problem that is not so unlike the problem of these Jewish leaders that we've read. Because perhaps in our own hearts we're claiming that we know something about God beyond what we need Christ for. He's worthy of the honor due his name. And if we don't give him that honor, we have no part with him. We don't truly know him. This is where the gospel comes in. This is where the fact that Jesus did not just simply come down to earth and say, I'm going to give you all a chance to respond to me. Let's see what you come up with. I'm going to stand right here and see what happens. He doesn't do that. His whole coming to earth is simply a foreshadowing of what he has come to do. But it is most certainly in tandem with that. From the moment that Jesus first breathed air as a human being on this planet, he began showing us the will of God to reach down to humanity in their Christlessness, in their own attempts to understand God, in their misapplying the place of God in their lives, and to sweep them up in a correction of that, in, in, a, in a marvelous display of life-giving work. And when Christ comes to the cross, he reveals that equality and deference between the Father and the Son. And he gives us reason to marvel him and marvel at him and to honor him. Very clear. First of all, the cross, we see that Christ submits to the Father. We read Jesus say, I can do nothing of my own accord, but only what I see the Father do. This is an interesting mystery because we don't see God the Father dying at the cross, but we see God the Son. We see Jesus obeying the word of his Father, that this is the mission that he was sent to do. And when he hangs on the cross and he doesn't say, hold on, I'm out, get me out of here, I'm done, let me go. No, he endures to the end, to his last breath. Bruce Milne, a Bible commentator for the Gospel of John, says, This is a unity in which the Son is so utterly submitted to the Father that the two are one in the works they do. And in the most fascinating way, at the cross, we see the work of the Father and the work of the Son. Because who is it who is punishing Jesus? Who is it whose wrath is poured out without anything held back upon Jesus? I read something the other day, common misunderstanding about Satan. If, if Satan is in hell, how is he also able to punish people? Satan doesn't punish anyone. Satan didn't punish Jesus. The Father did. The Father sacrificed his own son. We talk about this often. We come back to Abraham's illustration of, of God telling Abraham, hey, take your son, your only son, your son whom you love, and offer him up as a burnt offering to me. And in the moment before the knife came down upon his only son, God said, stop. I see now that you believe me. I see now that you're going to obey. Everything is clear. That's all there. But the knife did come down on the Son of God. And this is the unity between the Father and the Son, such that when the Father says, I'm going to send you to be an atoning sacrifice for the, the world, for all who will believe, the, Father, the Son says, not my will, but your will be done. At the cross, we also see the mystery of love between the Father and the Son. Verse 20, again, our groundwork understanding of the relationship between the Father and the Son is this. The Father loves the Son, and we ought to also assume that the Son loves the Father. The presence of the Son on earth is clear evidence that he loves the Father, and when he comes to the cross, he makes it 
explicit. He makes it obvious. He makes no doubt whatsoever of how he feels about the Father because he hung on the cross, not primarily for us. It was not his first purpose. His first purpose, the deepest part of who he is, is a son who obeys his Father, even to death and torture and suffering, even to the spiritual reality of the wrath of God being poured out upon him. This does not diminish the love that Christ has for his people whatsoever. But we need to understand it's not the starting point. The starting point, and what Jesus is making so clear here in his explanation of his relationship with his father, is that the starting point between the father and the son is the love that they share between the two of them. The mystery of love. Foundation to this passage. The foundation to the gospel. The foundation to the entire Bible. Foundation to creation. Because God was not unaware when he created that Adam and Eve would fall. He wasn't unaware that we would follow suit. He knew all of this. And so in the act of creation, he is already setting everything up to go perfectly according to his plan. That's a mystery. We want to live God's plan. We know that we we often work against it in some way. And yet God's miraculous power in this world is to turn things around, not only for our good, but for his glory and for the glory of his son. Thirdly, this greatest work is the work that Jesus is referring to. He will show even greater work so that we might marvel. This greater work is the cross. We so often want to, when we think of our own testimonies, and and rightly we should share what Christ is doing in our lives today. We should share how he has brought us through financial turmoil or relational distress or whatever those things might be. But the clearest and the greatest work of Christ has been done at the cross. Because without that, God has no reason to do anything else for us. And without that, we don't have our deepest need met. And so as we think of how Christ might interact in our lives today, we must start with the relationship between the Father and the Son coming to the point where we say their main goal is to get to the cross and to make everything right there. We also see at the cross the right for Christ to give life and to pass judgment in perfect unison with the Father's will. We see a clear depiction of that. Jesus didn't have to earn anything. He didn't have to earn his place with God, the Father, but he makes it clear to us. We think about, wow, this doctrine of election, for instance. Well, who's to say that Jesus can just draw names out of a hat or however he does it? You you tell me in Scripture that there's, there's unconditional election. It's not based on the fact that God looks forward in the future and says, oh, Nick's going to believe or so-and-so's going to believe. Let's pick them and elect them. No, he's choosing people according to his will. And if we have a problem with that, go to the cross and tell Jesus you have a problem with it. We can't. He can do what he wants. He can give life to whom he wants. We must respond. We must repent. We must believe. But we need life. He wants to humble us. He wants to show us who he is and what he's done that we might marvel and give him the honor that he deserves. And this, of course, at the, at the cross is the strongest reason why honoring the Son is honoring the Father. Because we honor the Son by worshiping Him. We honor the Father by worshiping Him. We honor the plan of the Father. We honor the work of the Son at the cross. This is what it means to be gospel-centered. To ever have in our sights the work of Jesus at the cross, but to know that it did not end with His death, but that He rose from death. He conquered death. He has begun to undo all the wrong in this world 
And one day, all sin and evil will be unraveled. And the only thing that will be left is the honor due to the Son and the Father. So we're called to marvel. Marvel at the Lord who is our friend. He calls us his friends, his disciples. But he's also our Lord. We're called to honor, as, honor him as we honor the Father. So we honor the Son. How do we do that? Rather than taking Christ out, rather than seeking, like the Jewish leaders, to kill him, we, we allow ourselves to be brought in by Christ. We, we turn it entirely around. We don't bring ourselves closer to God, but we actually listen and obey and are transformed by the word of Christ, that we might be brought in and receive him as he wills. So we need to make time to marvel at Christ. We need to make time to stop and consider who he is. And I don't know about you, Sunday morning is a great time. It's the time I look forward to throughout the whole week the most, but it's not enough. I have to live six other days without starting like this. We need to set time aside. We need to make room in our lives to marvel at Christ, to look at his word, to spend time in prayer, to be with other believers, to make it a priority that transcends other things such that the world might look at us and say, well, that seems like you have your priorities out of whack because you're not doing X, Y, or Z, because you're not overachieving in this one area, but you've decided to set time aside to marvel at Christ, that he might daily receive the honor he deserves. This is contrary to the fallen mindset entirely. This is the whole problem of sin. It's, it's that a hum, human mind has shifted from honoring Christ and has decided to honor self and honor other things. And all of this with the purpose that our testimony might be genuine. One of our problems with sharing the faith comes down to, do we actually marvel at it? Do we actually honor Christ as we ought to? And if we don't, we have no testimony. It's, it's, as if, it's as if testimony is inactive. If a life of marveling and a life of honoring Christ is not accompanying it. So the Spirit comes. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. He lives inside of every believer. He applies the work of Christ such that from the moment you believed, the reason you believed is because the Holy Spirit came in and said believe, and you said, okay. There's no other answer, but yes, Lord, I will. The Spirit comes in to testify to Christ, to empower us, to submit to Christ as, the, as Christ submits to the Father, to imitate Christ as Christ imitates the Father, and to testify to him just as Jesus has testified to us who he is in relation to his Father. The Spirit also comes so that we might be accepted in the Beloved. So that that beautiful notion that the Father loves the Son might be true of us as well. Paul tells us that we are accepted in the Beloved. We are somehow mysteriously now thrown into the amazing activity of the love of God the Father for his Son. We share in that now. So we must participate. We must marvel. We must honor him. Father loves the son. He loves the world. He loves his people. He wants us to testify of that love. In John 17, verses 1 through 3, Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, 
the only true God, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus' mission is perfectly clear, to bring people to know his Father the way he does, to be brought into that loving relationship, not to become deified, to become sons of God, capital S, but rather to become the children of God who have been brought in by their elder brother, Christ, and given the opportunity to know him. So our genuine testimony has to prioritize marveling and honoring Christ. We have to let the statement that Christ is equal to the Father stand in our lives and let it be a pillar of our lives. That When we talk about Jesus, we're not talking about a neighbor or a friend or even a relative or someone we care much about. We are talking about the God of the universe. So I'm going to ask you three questions. Do you create space to marvel at? Do you create space to honor Christ in your life? Do you take the everyday things of life and find ways to express your marveling at him, to honor Christ with the work that he's given you? Secondly, can you pray this week in light of your participation in the love of the Father and the Son? The Father loves the Son, and we know that he loves perfectly, and that the Son loves and obeys perfectly the Father. And we've been brought into the glory of that, not because of ourselves, but because of grace. Can you let that shape your prayer life this week? Can you begin with that notion? So that as, as we did when we read this passage and then stopped to pray and considered praying the word Father and sharing in that blessed position. Lastly, does your testimony come from the power of the Spirit revealing these truths to you? Or do they come somewhere else? Or do they come from a book that you read or uh, some kind of guilt motivation in your heart? I, I've got to be a good evangelistic Christian. Would you seek the Spirit's power to testify powerfully to the majesty of Christ, to the goodness of him in your life? Will you let Jesus reign wherever you are? You can't let him do it. He does. But will you submit to that? Will you recognize that today? Let, let Christ be Christ in your life. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father, we thank you this morning that you are faithful to make all these things, all these truths effective in our hearts and in our minds to not leave us as we were before, though perhaps even in this moment we're thinking, I feel relatively unchanged. Maybe we're thinking, I just feel more tired. I feel more hungry. I feel more ready to do the next thing. Or let us not walk through those doors back there the same as we perhaps came in unless we came in recognizing Christ as he truly is. I pray this morning, as we come to our last song, as we consider Jesus will reign everywhere, all the time, perfectly for eternity, that that would not let us think, okay, I've got a little bit of time left to do my own thing and to interpret Christ the way I'd like, but rather that we would embrace that eternal truth today for your glory. In Jesus' name.